Hi everyone and welcome to Ask the Horse Live. I'm your host, Michelle Anderson, Digital Managing <laughs> Editor of The Horse. Tonight we're talking about heredity and equine genetic diseases. For a long time, horse breeders, veterinarians, and owners uh, suspected certain breeds or bloodlines of horses were more prone to certain diseases, disorders, and characteristics. But we didn't necessarily understand how those characteristics were passed from generation to generation. However, with advances in genetics research, we have new clues about inheritance in our horses. And with this knowledge, we can improve the health and lives of our animals. To learn more, we're joined tonight by Dr. Ernest Bailey of the University of Kentucky and Dr. Samantha Brooks of the University of Florida. Both hold PhDs and have spent their careers investigating inheritance and teaching genetics to vet students and scientists. Welcome to both of you. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Thanks for the invitation, and um, it'll be great to talk to all of our horse owners out there on the Internet. Um, so let's start with you, Dr. Bailey. Can you tell us about your interest and experience in equine genetics? Well, when I was a student, I was working with a horse veterinarian, and he was treating a case of uh, hemolytic disease of newborn foals. And I was just intrigued with the interface of uh, immunology and, and genetics and reproduction. And I happened to be at a school where they had a um, blood typing laboratory for horses. So I worked for there for a while and I became even further interested in the amount of variation that occurred between horses. But I was very frustrated because there wasn't much you could do with it. And then after I started doing some research, the uh, gene mapping came along and we were able to look at DNA. We were able to look at genes anywhere and uh, just all sorts of possibilities opened up in terms of being able to find genes for, for health traits, color traits, performance traits. And so that's kind of where we are. Okay. And Dr. Brooks, uh, what is your interest and focus in equine genetics? Well, I'm, I'm originally from Lexington, Kentucky, and so I like to say that horses are kind of in my genes. Um, so I'm a, I have a congenital horse addiction. And uh, when I was going to school, I thought I was um, going to be pre-vet, but I discovered pretty quickly that genetics was really fascinating, and it was a great way to, to get to the science not behind a lot of the conditions that were present in the horses that I'm working with so much. Um, so I um, studied for a while with Dr. Bailey, and um, he definitely uh, cemented that interest <laughs> in my mind. And since then, my research program has focused on um, coat colors and um, a few performance traits and a few health traits including uh, metabolic syndrome and laminitis, um, behavioral characteristics, and behavioral characteristics, uh, I said behavioral, um, neurologic characteristics, including epilepsy disorders and things like that. Okay. So I want to give everyone a quick review of our Ask the Horse Live format. We'll be starting with questions that everyone submitted during registration, but if you're listening live and you have a question you'd like to ask or clarification about something the doctors have said, please go ahead and enter that in the chat window in front of you, and we'll do our best to get to as many of your questions as possible during the hour. Let's go ahead and dive in. This is a, a big subject, so we're going to start with you, Dr. Bailey. Uh, the, our first question is from Anne in Lafayette, Indiana, and Anne <laughs> wants to know, how does, genetic, how does the genetic testing process work? What's required, and how do I get an adequate sample? sample for testing my horse. Okay. Well, 
in the past, we used a variety of tissues um, and we used a variety of tests, but now it's come down to just looking at DNA. And so what you want is a source of DNA. And if you watch television and the forensic science programs, you know that you can get DNA from almost, almost anything. What they don't tell you on the TV programs is that the success rate is often not very good. And so we have, have really come down to using almost 99% of the time hair. And so if, if you are doing uh, any kind of, of genetic test in a horse, what you probably want to do is to, is to go and wrap your finger around about, about 20 to 30 main hairs, pluck them out, making sure that you pull out the root, the uh, uh, roots of the hairs as well, because those hair bulbs, each of them contains about 80,000 cells. And you send those to the laboratory, the laboratory snips off most of the hair, keeps the hair bulbs, and will extract the DNA from those. And uh, that's the basis, really, for, for all the testing that is done today. And so, Dr. Bailey, for the testing that's available, where are, what are the different options that horse owners have? Uh, is it the vet schools or the private uh, companies <clears throat> that offer it? Uh, what, what are our options? Probably the, the easiest thing to do is to go online and, and see where there are tests. It used to be that there was uh, um, one or two places in the country that would do it. Now, with the ease of doing genetic testing, there's lots of, of commercial laboratories that are doing it. I, I mean, I'm, I'm at a university. I'm, I'm reluctant to give a, a commercial plug to places, but, I mean, there's, there's uh, University of California Davis is well known and has done parentage testing and genetic testing. Here at the University of Kentucky, they do genetic tests. Michigan has a laboratory that does testing. Sam, do you do, you do test, offer testing in Florida? Uh, we don't we don't do any um, diagnostic testing here in okay. Florida. I think one of the biggest things to that is striking about genetic testing in horses and sometimes in dogs is that the tests are are almost always submitted by the horse owner and and very rarely submitted by the referring veterinarian. And so that means that the horse owner is often responsible for gathering the sample, sending it off, and then um, receiving the res and reading the results hopefully uh, getting some consultation with their veterinarian or with a geneticist. And that's very different from, from uh, initially from testing in dogs, where it was almost always done by a veterinarian, and from testing in humans, where in some states it's illegal for uh, human genetic testing to be initiated by anyone than your medical um, doctor. And so that means even if your testing is ordered by a veterinarian, it very rarely goes through the, the same diagnostic channel that something like a blood test or a tissue test would go through. Yeah, interesting. So, Dr. Brooks, our next question is for you, and it's from Lori in Canada. And Lori wants to know if we're discovering new genetic diseases in horses. Yeah, absolutely. Um, every day. I mean, it, you. Um, it, uh, it's they aware of the advances in human medicine that have resulted from the sequencing of the human genome. And since the sequence of the horse genome was completed in 2009, uh, many of our, our horse genetic tests and technologies are beginning to catch up at a really amazing rate. Um, so these days, you, you know, we used to only have the tools to be able to try to attack the simple traits, the ones that were caused by a single gene. But now we have the, the kind of tools that enable us to go after more complex things like 
uh, resistance to infectious disease or uh, complex disorders of, of growth and development. Um, so the, the, we, have, um, we have amazing set of, of tools that has given us um, uh, the ability to do just about anything we can think of now, um, but we're, we tend to be more limited in terms of funding and the ability to find the samples we need. Um, Dr. Bailey, we have a question from Jennifer in Kentucky, and Jennifer wants to know if there is a test that will test my horse for multiple genetic disorders, or do each does each test need to be completed individually? Well, there, there are different genes or different mutations, <clears throat> different variants that are responsible for each trait. So in that sense, they're being done individually, but I, I'm not don't have a commercial lab. But some of the commercial laboratories do offer um, panels that in, that that include a large number of uh, of tests. Um, Sam, do you have you've been interacting with a, a commercial laboratory? Are, are there sets that are run that you could comment on? Oh yeah, yeah. There's a there's a couple of groups <coughs> that are running large. Actually, um, the neat thing is is uh, if you look at the example of human medicine, the the standard these days are chips that can test about a million markers in a single run. And um, in horse, for research purposes, we have tools that can easily do uh, over half a million markers in a run. And um, going back to human medicine, now for some particular conditions, it's standard to go ahead and sequence the entire genome. So you're getting about 2.7 billion markers or bases um, per run. It's, it's just that. In, on the horse side of things, we're a little slower at getting uh, these million marker size panels out for commercial use. And so um, the standard these days, you can get um, little combined packages for specific breeds that might have five disease markers or 10 color markers, up to uh, panels available in the US and in Europe that have maybe 200 markers in them. Um, so there's a lot of choices. and these choices are, are coming about because of all the neat technological advances that were developed primarily as part of the Human Genome Project. So it, you have a lot more options now than you did 10 years ago. And Dr. Brooks, we have a question that's from Stacy in New York, and Stacy wants to know if you can explain the difference between a dominant and a recessive gene. Well, that, that's a common question that we get, and it's really, it's pretty tough, but um, when we talk about dominant and recessive, we're describing the interaction between the two copies <coughs> of a single gene or, or locus. So uh, for nearly all the genes in our body and in our horse's body, you have two copies. We call that diploid. Um, it's kind of a handy system because if you have a mutation uh, in one copy of the, of the gene, then you usually have a spare. You have a spare copy that's still functional and helps to protect us against the problems associated with DNA damage and random mutation. Um, so sometimes, if you have a change in one of two copies, uh, it will be visible in the phenotype. So a really good example of this is, is Tobiano. In the case of Tobiano, you have a change on one copy, uh, but not the other. The other can, can be the same as what we call wild type. And even if the two copies has changed, you get a very visible phenotype. You get that striking Tobiano 
uh, color pattern. <clears throat> that, that's what we call dominant. When only one when a change on just one copy is sufficient to see the phenotype. The opposite situation uh, is recessive. In the case of recessive, we say the gene kind of hides, and a change on one copy is not sufficient to create a phenotype. You need that same change on two copies uh, to see that. And um, our sort of poster child example for that will be maybe chestnut. So uh, chestnut horse has a missense mutation in the MATP gene that is recessive. And every chestnut horse will have two copies of that uh, so that they have the, the beautiful red color. On the flip side of this, you can actually use this to create some handy rules. So if you have a chestnut um, foal, you may or may not have chestnut um, parents. They might not show that visible phenotype because they might be carriers, right? But if you have a Tobiano foal, because that Tobiano allele is dominant, well, at least one of the two parents has to have a Tobiano um, coat color because one of the two parents had to give them that allele, and that allele is a dominant type uh, allele, and so you'll you, you know one of those copies came from a parent somewhere, wherever they might be. So if you take those two chestnuts and you breed two chestnuts together, then every foal of those two chestnuts will be a chestnut, correct? Because it's a recessive yep. gene? If, if you're only counting the action of that, of that chestnut locus, then absolutely. Okay. And that's, then it gets more complicated from there, right? <laughs> it gets more complicated, yes. <laughs> Um, our next question is from Justine in Salem, Oregon, and this one I'm going to give to Dr. Bailey. And Justine wants to know if there are any breed-specific genetic problems, and specifically, do thoroughbreds have any genetic problems related to the breed? Um, I was just looking at that. The um, I was looking actually at, the, at you know, we, we, there are things that are fairly breed specific, and HYPP is, 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 and I don't know if that'll come up later on in other questions, but HYPP is a disease gene that is present or trait that's present principally in quarter horses, had its origin in a particular quarter horse some years ago, and all horses that have that mutation are descended from that horse. There's a G disease in Arabian horses called severe combined immune deficiency disease, and all of the all of the horses that have that go back to a stallion that was imported into New York in 1925, and that's characteristic of, of Arabian horses. And any horse that has that mutation is descended from Arabian horses. I I don't know, and so so those are breed specific in that sense. And the horse there are horses outside of them that may have that, but they've been crossed with them. And so I think that there have been some paint horses that have been found to have the HYPP gene, but when you look at their pedigree, they go back to the quarter horse. Mm -hmm. um, for miniature horses, um, they have a, they, there's an issue with, with dwarfism in there, and we don't know quite why, but there may have been a selection for a dwarfism trait. Um, they're related in that way. The second part, do thoroughbreds have any genetic problems? I mean, they certainly do, and you listen to, to it, and they're concerned about... Um, soundness of the horses, um, they're concerned about uh, respiratory disease, they're concerned about uh, um, um, a, a variety of conditions. 
they're not necessarily restricted to thoroughbreds, and, and I'm not aware of any health conditions that are unique to thoroughbreds that are not present in other breeds. Sam can, can correct me if she comes if she knows of it. But in the thoroughbreds, those things that we've identified are probably complex and involve multiple genes or, or incomplete penetrance. And so they've been they've been difficult to study and they're under a lot of under a lot of research at present. I, I, yeah, I, I, mean, I would agree with you. I mean, in the thoroughbreds, uh, we do know that there are a few health conditions that have a strong genetic component. Uh, recurrent laryngeal neuropathy uh, is yep. of concern to thoroughbred owners, not to thoroughbreds, but of concern to thoroughbred owners. Genetic component. Um, developmental orthopedic disease, um, those OCD lesions and uh, chips and things, uh, again, not specific to thoroughbreds, but with a strong genetic component and of concern uh, to them. And RER, the uh, recurrent um, exertional rhabdomyolysis, that is has a strong genetic component and is found in thoroughbreds. But it's but it's not restricted to thoroughbreds. And so, in terms of them being breed specific diseases, I mean, one of one of the issues is that. Horses are really closely related. If you look at the foundation of almost all breeds in the United States, thoroughbreds are at the basis of them. Mm -hmm. You know, they involve foundation horses from what were thoroughbreds 100, 150 years ago. So they were all really pretty closely related. These d disease genes that, are, that have come up and are identified with particular breeds have come up in the last 100 years or so and are probably associated with a founder horse of some sort. And that's, that's why they are breed specific. But at the basis, the horses tend to be fairly well related, so there's a lot of common health problems. Um, Dr. Brooks, we have a question from our live audience uh, that's a follow-up to uh, you mentioning possible behavioral traits. Randall wants to know if uh, working cattle or cow instinct is inherited in horses. Uh, and are there ways that aptitude for certain sports, such as reining, are inherited? Oh, that, that's a great question. Um, my uh, laboratory, we actually we put together a couple of grants specifically to look at cow scent uh, in the working cow horse, because if we look at the dog as an analogy for the horse, there are, um, it's a complex genetic trait, but there is a strong genetic component to it. And so we expected to find the same thing in horses, especially since um, certain lines of horse are known to have a particularly strong aptitude for that behavior, whereas other breeds and lines of horse uh, do not <laughs> exhibit good cow scent. Mm -hmm. um, we actually had hoped to, to do some controlled experiments to, to measure the cowiness <clears throat> set of quarter horses and then to examine the markers in their genome to identify what were the genes that were contributing to that trait. Um, unfortunately, those grants weren't funded yet, but I do still hope to do that work uh, someday so that we can exactly quantify how these Cali horses are getting that remarkable, remarkable ability and what's unique about their brain and then provide a tool so that we could select um, maybe from a very, very young age or when you're selecting crosses between sires and dams, uh, we could select for horses with the degree of cowiness the breeder wants um, to find. So it's that we, we don't have good, reliable measures of, of how heritable it is yet, but, but it seems very likely that there is a, a, a genetic. Yeah, well, that's, inter that. that's interesting. The fact, the, oh, 
Go on, Dr. Bailey. Could I could, could I introduce? Yeah, there, there were two things. The one, it, it I mean, it does seem that it's genetic, and 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 that's not been nailed down for a variety of reasons. But just simply the fact that it's such a profoundly held trait for that one discrete group of animals. Um, that's that's almost classic definition of what is a genetic trait, and so you know determining what the genetics of it is a question. Uh, the other thing I wanted to add was there, an interesting aside. I was talking to a Spanish breeder one time, and he was of the opinion that the cattle sense in the uh, quarter horse was derivative of horses that were used for bullfighting in Spain a long time ago, because originally the uh, bullfighters would ride horses, and the horses had to to anticipate what the bulls would do. And so he was speculating that this is where the trait probably originated and that it, that it shows up in the uh, Western Mustangs, and, and that's perhaps evidence of the uh, Spanish connection with the uh, uh, quarter horse. Huh. That's interesting. And I have, so I have a quarter horse and I have an Australian cattle dog and I took the two of them to a cow working clinic just for fun. Um, my dog was in the truck and he saw the cows and whatever DNA is in him completely went off. He'd never seen a cow in his life. And you could see like that is what he was meant to do is something with that cow. Um, my uh -huh. quarter horse got in with the cows and had no clue. <laughs> so whatever that, whatever those genes are, my quarter horse did not get them. <laughs> So that's really fascinating. Horses for sure. <laughs> he has other talents. So uh, we have another question from Randall, and Randall wants to know about white horses in thoroughbreds. How can that be explained genetically? Uh, Dr. Brooks, do you want to take that question? Oh, that's a good place to put it, Sam. <laughs> that's Sam's favorite topic. Um, yeah, absolutely. It, you know, it happens. Most of the cases of white and thoroughbreds, we can actually look back historically in the pedigree and we can find the founder individual for that coat color fairly recently in history, probably for two reasons. The first reason is that most of these white thoroughbreds um, have gotten their color through a spontaneous mutation. You know, in every single generation, every new offspring that's born, they don't have a perfect copy of their parental DNA, there's always a, a few changes that pop in there each generation, and occasionally one of these changes happen in the killer gene, often the kit gene, um, and you don't see these mutations most of the time because they're usually silent or don't involve something quite as obvious as a brilliantly white coat, right? Mm -hmm. um, but, but the thoroughbreds are not unique. These spontaneous white mutations, they happen in other breeds of horse, they happen in deer, they happen in alligators, uh, they happen in birds, they happen in moose. Uh, it happens throughout nature periodically. I think the reason it is so striking in the thoroughbred is because most thoroughbreds are fairly plainly marked. And for a long time, the, the jockey club wanted to exclude those horses. And I'll say historically, uh, when these spontaneous mutations arose, uh, it, the first knee-jerk reaction on the part of the broodmare owner was to suspect that the parentage was wrong. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they sure that somebody's paint stallion had jumped the fence and got in with their mare, right? Yeah. So until parentage verification came about, it was almost universal that these horses did not get um, appropriate registration. So um, these, these, I think these horses are starting to be recognized for their unique coat colors. Some of them have gone to the track and have raced um, and uh, been quite a sight to see a spectacle on the track when you see a beautiful white horse coming mm -hmm. coming down the long side. But um, there, I, I think that um, 
as of right now, we don't know that there are too many health deficits in our white horses other than um, they are liable to sunburn. So, so, so is the, the, the other oh, sorry, Dr. Bailey? Well, the, the, I mean, the other interesting thing, and, and I thought Sam would bring this up, is that, is that these uh, horses largely been identified as having mutations in one particular gene called KIT. And, and there's been over 20, Sam, how many mutations have been identified so far? And uh, that's one of the questions that we have as geneticists, is why is this one gene so, so hypermutable? Yeah, I, there's over 23 in the published literature, and I'll tell you there's a few more in the pipeline on their way. Um, I think that the reason why KIT is often found um, as responsible for white, uh, not just in horse, but in mice, there's more than 200 alleles attributable to KIT, um, is just because of the, the function of the KIT gene. I think frequently if you have mutation in, in other genes that could result in white, you more often also get health problems that are yeah. incompatible with the, yeah. with the management of a animal like a, like a horse. Um, particularly if you think of, if you look at proper albinos, the oculocutaneous albinism, they often have other severe uh, health deficits that are just fine for a laboratory mouse, but in a, a horse, uh, that's a, a, a problem. So I think one of the reasons is that that kit's just a fairly easy uh, a gene that can still uh, doesn't have the same health consequences. The other theory about kit ha is a, a theory of domestication across the board is um, that some of these genes that are involved in pigmentation, <coughs> you know, are cells with, with dendrites, but neurons are also cells with dendrites. And so one of the theories of domestication as to why we get the appearance of domestic behavior and spotting patterns, aside from our own nature as humans to select something that looks cool, mm -hmm. maybe the animals that have spotting patterns have, they have a deficit in the function of dendritic pigment cells, but they might also have changes in their brain related to dendritic cells that might give them a more juvenile behavior pattern that's a little more amenable to sharing their life with humans. It's a theory that, you know, it's hard to nail down, but it's come up in dogs, uh, it's come up in foxes, and it gets tossed around in horses and cattle occasionally as well. Interesting. So... Dr. Brooks, when we're talking about these white thoroughbreds, we're not talking about like a cremello white horse or, or an albino. We're talking about an actual white colored horse. Is that correct? Yes, yes. absolutely. White horses, um, all, they, white has a spectrum of expression, but they can, in a thoroughbred, they're often mostly to entirely white. They may have uh, blue eyes. They, they don't generally have pink eyes the way you would see in an albino. They have some lingering pigment there. That's probably why they tend to have good functional vision. Albinos often have problems uh, with vision. Um, now, Cremello in thoroughbreds is not impossible. It is rare. Uh, but Cremellos, they, they tend to still have a little bit of pigment across their body and in their eyes and their skin. They'll be very light colored, but you can still detect that pigment if you look closely. Our next question is for Dr. Bailey, and it's from Melissa in Idaho. And Melissa says, it seems like there are a lot of genetic diseases in quarter horses and Arabians specifically. She says she's been told that we just have more interest in research in these breeds, and that's why there are more diseases that have been identified. What's your take on that theory? I, I, 
I mean, I think it's have to. I think that, that people have had money and they've been interested in studying the genetics of quarter horses and Arabians. And, and there have been things that have come up. We've known about those for quite a while. The, the, the HYPP I mentioned earlier in the skid. Um, I would say, though, that thoroughbreds are, are the outlier in that because thoroughbreds, they, we have not found that many diseases. And it would be wrong to say that people haven't been interested and haven't been looking at them. Um, there's, there's been a lot of research on them, but the thing is, is that there haven't been any simple genetic diseases. The um, thoroughbred has been selected for performance for about 300 years. And I think that if you came up with some of these things, they, they would have been weeded out earlier. Um, and, it's, and it's a closed book. These other breeds have come about more recently, within the last 100 years. And so they're still shaking out some of these traits. These things may have occurred in, among the thoroughbreds 200 years ago, and they may have spent 100 years getting rid of them. The quarter horse and the Arabian horse are still doing that. Interesting. Sure. Um, I mean, I'd agree. The only thing I would add that I think is one of the reasonings behind we these uh, the finding of these particular single gene conditions in the quarter horse and the Arab is that um, the market forces in the quarter horse and the Arab are sometimes driven by selection for popular sires present on a pedigree. Um, so in the Arabian horse, there's sometimes a lot of focus in maintaining the purity of particular strains and crosses, and in the quarter horse. Um, often the pedigree is, is the uh, largest single supporter of the market value of a foal. They say, oh, he's, he's, you know, he's got foundation so-and-so, top and bottom, that, that type of thing. Uh, the, what happens there is even though the quarter horse and the Arabian as a breed as a whole have lots of genetic diversity, is that um, during a, a market period of a popular sire, you can get within two or three generations fairly rapid and relatively tight inbreeding, just driven by the market. Um, and when those sort of crosses um, initially happen, uh, if there is a, a recessive deleterious allele there, it will uh, be far more likely to be apparent because the, the likelihood of homozygosity goes up when you have uh, shared ancestry in a pedigree. So it's, it's not... It has nothing to do with the genetic diversity of the Arabian or the quarter horse. As a population, they're very healthy. It's just that periodically, um, our horse market drives toward the, towards this, this uh, popular sire usage that, that reveals these recessive alleles. Uh, the trick is, is simply that we need to use all the tools we have in our arsenal to identify these things and manage them. We can manage them. We can maintain the usage of some of these popular sires and at the same time, make educated choices to improve the health and well-being of the prospective full crop. Dr. Brooks, we have another question. This one's from Amanda in Wyoming. I, Amanda wants to know why it seems like so many genetic diseases in horses are related to coat color. <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting question. And it stems from a phenomenon known as pleiotropy. Uh, pleiotropy is a big long word that just means that uh, any given gene might have multiple functions in the body. Um, so when scientists initially started looking at the human genome, they suspected that they would find hundreds of thousands of genes in the genome because mm -hmm. there were hundreds of thousands of enzymes and functions in the body that needed a gene to create them. What they discovered is there's actually slightly less than 20,000 genes in the genome it's just that many genes are used for multiple purposes using a complex set of instructions to direct 
the when and how and where uh, in the body they're used. So it's, instead of thinking of our genes as a collection of steak knives and forks, <clears throat> you can use one as a collection of Swiss Army knives that can come out and be adapted slightly for many different purposes. So in any gene, if you make a change, it's not at all unusual these days to discover that that change might have action in sometimes very distant uh, functions in the body. In the case of these coat colors, they're just simply a change. And the coat color is just a nice red flag for us as, as humans, as very visual beings that says, hey, there's a change. And for almost every coat color, uh, that change is going to have an action in more than one system in the body. So not just in pigmentation, but maybe in perception, maybe in behavior, maybe in their immunology, um, or perhaps in their uh, fertility or reproductive health. Um, so it, it, it's, not, it's not that it's unique to coat color alleles. It's just that coat color alleles are so easy for us to find <laughs> that we, we often identify the mutation and then subsequently follow up and study them. Um, we have a question for Dr. Bailey. It's from Sandy in California. And Sandy wants to know if there's a genetic model for deafness in Overo horses, and has that been identified? There's, um, there's, there's a coat color pattern that is similar to the frame Overo, and I guess it's sometimes called Overo, but it's, it's, it's a, um, it's, we tend to call it splashed white. And there's a defect in a gene called PAX3. And it's well known in humans and in mice to cause deafness. And the condition in those cases is called Wardenburg syndrome. But it's awkward because it doesn't happen all the time. You can have splashed white horses that are not deaf. But, and we don't know what the, it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. So it is associated there. With respect to the frame ovaro, <clears throat> there have been some reports of, of frame ovaro horses being affected with deafness. And it's, it's not clear to me in looking at the work that those horses didn't also have this, this PAX3 mutation. The other issue is that, that, that the ovaro could also contribute to it, and, and something called incomplete penetrance, um, basically the gene being present but not always expressed. If the gene is present and expressed 60% of the time, 40% of the time the individuals will appear normal. So in short, the answer is no, we've not identified uh, a, a, a trait of, of the frame ovaro associated with deafness. There is an ovaro condition, it's sometimes called splashed white, and there is definitely deafness associated with some of those, but not always. Dr. Brooks, our next question is from Mark in Columbia, Tennessee. Mark is interested in purchasing a paint mare for breeding. What genetic disorders should he be concerned about? And is it too much to ask about these tests and results before I purchase the mare? So there's some due diligence there, I guess, in, in buying a mare. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, Mark, this is a great question. Um, so for, for a paint horse or any of our stock horse breeds, uh, the easiest um, uh, set of, of alleles that we can recommend is what they call the five-way panel. So the five-way panel should include HYPP, PSSM, uh, MH, malignant hypothermia, HERDA, and something called GBED or GBED. Um, those are frequently found in stock horse breeds, and so they're the most likely ones uh, that would be identified in a paint 
there. So that, that's an, an easy go-to. That set of five tests is easy to find and is relatively in, inexpensive. And if you intend to breed this mare, you absolutely should should do that. Now, in, because he says that she's a paint horse, relevant to our last question, um, it also makes sense to go ahead and do one of the spotting uh, coat color panels. And there are a number available out there. But in particular, he wants to look for that splashed white overo and for frame overo. He wants to look for frame overo because, of course, that has some, some very serious health consequences uh, because foals that would that might uh, result from crossing his mare to another horse carrying in that uh, could be homozygous for the frame overo allele. And those foals um, have a, a recessive lethal disease that causes their intestines to not function properly. So um, he needs to do a five-way, and then he should do the coat color uh, for the frame overo, and then for the flashlight if he's concerned about deafness. The other reason he might want to do that coat color panel, of course, is because much of the market value in a paint horse is related to their coat color and their spotting pattern. And which spotting pattern is the most popular, most valuable, actually varies. And, you know, in, in previous decades, it was the loudly marked Tovero. Now it's more of the, the splash white marked horse. But if he has the genetic markers from that coat color panel, he can really easily tailor his selection of a future stallion to get uh, to increase the likelihood that he will get the, a foal marked in the way that will be um, the, the most valuable on the, on the market. And of course, for most horse people, uh, not all of us are independently wealthy, right? So if we want to have viable, sustainable horse operation, we, we do have to worry just a little bit about the bottom line occasionally, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, and, and I, I, I can't stress enough how important it is because horses are expensive. Uh, these genetic costs, uh, even if you do a very, very comprehensive panel of tests, can be easily obtained for under $200 total. And if you look at the cost of, of uh, you know, look at your stud fees, that could be from 500 to 5000 to half a million dollars. <laughs> And the cost of feed every single month, the cost of vaccines, um, it's really a very, very small monetary investment for information that could be potentially life-saving for future foals, and even for your mare um, herself. Uh, you know, it's just like you wouldn't go out and buy a used car without the Carfax these days. Everybody gets a Carfax. You go to the dealer, you get a Carfax. I would not buy um, a broodmare or a stallion prospect without comprehensive genetic testing. You're buying that horse for their genetic value, why not be an educated consumer and get as much information as you possibly can? If you have a seller who's reluctant to provide that, I, especially if you're willing to pay for the testing, I'd be very suspicious, very, very suspicious. And Dr. Brooks, you mentioned lethal white. Um, we have a question from Vanetta in California. and. She wants to know what is lavender foal syndrome, and is it similar to or like lethal white syndrome? Well, that's an interesting question. Um, lavender foal syndrome is a recessive lethal disease that's found most frequently in um, Arabian horses and related breeds. So because the Arabian is a fairly uh, popular light horse used in the development of many of sport horse and light horse breeds. We have some Arabian lineage and, and things like some of our European warm bloods. So um, the lavender foal allele itself, although it is most often associated with Arabians, it's not unique to Arabians. Now lavender foal is a specific change in a gene called myosin 5A. 
And myosin 5A is crucial to the functions of a group of cells called Purkinje cells in the brain. Uh, when these don't function correctly, when you have the lavender fold change in the myosin 5A, uh, these folds lose the ability for much of their um, conscious uh, motor coordination. So as folds, they, they cannot stand. Uh, most of them cannot uh, nurse properly on their own, although they do have a supple reflex. And they exhibit this paddling and arched back type motion that is often thought to be a seizure, but probably is just a completely uncoordinated attempt at spontaneous movement. Um, the, this disease is, is invariably lethal because uh, the foals simply never gain the ability to have any control uh, over their, their body movement. And uh, to survive beyond the first um, you know, day or two of life, they require intensive supportive care in the hospital. Um, the one thing it has in common with lethal white syndrome is that lethal white also impacts a particular set of neurons. In this case, it's a very different set of neurons. It's a set of neurons in the gut. And these are neurons that are important for maintaining gut motility, signaling that gut to move, uh, to contract, so that it pushes your food through your intestinal tract. So I mentioned earlier that I'm interested in the overlap between neurons as dendritic cells and pigments as uh, pigment cells because they're dendritic. And this is another place where we have an overlap. Hmm. Um, the white syndrome, it, because of, of that uh, defect, you get uh, changes in those neurons. They're actually, it's a, it's a change in a cell surface receptor that causes the neurons not to go to the gut where they're supposed to be. It's in the EDNRB gene. And it also causes the pigment cells not to go where they're supposed to be. So in a heterozygous horse, the cells don't quite fill in, giving you that frame of color around the edge of the horse. But the gut neurons seem to get where they need to be sufficiently to function. In a homozygous horse, neither mm -hmm. the gut neurons nor the pigment cells manage to, to get to where they're supposed to be. Lavender fold is a little different in that that myosin 5A, it's important for having functional Purkinje cells uh, in there. Um, for, it's actually specifically for, for moving vesicles of neurotransmitters down uh, the long dendrites of those Purkinje cells. And in the pigment cells, it's responsible for moving those melanosomes down the dendrites of the pigment cells to get pigment uh, properly produced and put into the um, package for, for pigmenting, pigmenting the skin. So you, you get the overlap again between a nervous disease and a loss of pigmentation due to this dual usage of genes in these two types of dendritic cells, neurons and uh, melanocytes or pigment cells. But they're two very, very different types of of defects. One is uh, a loss of, of uh, migra migratory signals and the cells will never arrive. And, and lavender fall is a case where you have a, a defect in the function of the cells, so the cells just don't work the way they should. Interesting. Um, we have a question from our live audience uh, for Dr. Bailey. Claire wants to know how prevalent is PSSM in thoroughbreds? So we're talking about thoroughbreds earlier, um, but this question specifically about PSSM, which also shows up in our quarter horses and warm bloods. Uh, Dr. Bailey? I don't know. Sam, do you know what the prevalence is? It's not common. Um, it, 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 it is present. not common. Um, it, it, there are there is more than one type of PSSM. Um, the most common type and the first to be identified was named PSSM one, one. and that is common to stock horses and many draft breeds. 
Uh, there is a PSSM type 2 that's common to European type draft breeds. And there certainly are um, many other horses that don't necessarily carry one of those two known mutations that present with muscle disease and polysaccharide storage abnormalities that would kind of fall um, clinically into that family of the storage myopathies but aren't yet identified. Um, so the answer is there may be similar diseases uh, in the thoroughbred. It's not likely to be the PSSM1 and hopefully with some additional work from our colleagues that, that focus on muscle diseases, those might be identified in the near future. But it's, it's typically a, a, a disease or it comes from the draft horse or heavy, heavy horses. Yeah, absolutely. It's very high frequency yeah. in the heavy horses. And in the heavy horses, uh, the theory is that um, the, the tendency to want to re retain those uh, polysaccharide granules within your muscle cells might have been an advantage during times of starvation. <laughs> Our thought is that there's this balancing selection. There's some good that comes with the bad. And if you're a draft horse, you're not going out and running uh, races on the racetrack, uh, managing PSSM1 is pretty, uh, is, is, is typically doable. Um, for a quarter horse who might be a cutting horse or reining horse or a, a race horse, managing PSSM1 is far more difficult. And it, and it has a reasonably high frequency in quarter horses, and that's thought probably due to what, what Samantha was talking about before, a founder effect, where there may have been a popular horse that had it. But, I mean, I, I don't know what the frequency is in, in thoroughbreds, but I believe that it's fairly low compared to quarter horses and draft horses. Yeah, yeah and it's interesting, in the quarter horses, there, there are some drafty-type horses back if you look way back mm -hmm. in the pedigrees that were those foundation stallions. So you know, we have uh, certain sires who are associated with different diseases. Have we found specific sires that are related to, to the PSSM in the quarter horses? You know, the people who know that aren't talking about it. That's sensitive information. Got it. Yeah, as geneticists, we don't like to name names, but I would say that uh, because PSSM1 is present in so many different breeds of horse, if you think about the family tree of the horse and when the last common ancestor was uh, between a Belgian draft horse and some of our quarter horses, you know, you have some admixture there too, of course, some recent mixing of the pools, but PSSM1 itself is probably a fairly old mutation that's been around a good long while. So if we want to try to, to name names and point fingers about which horse might have started that genetic disease, we might have to go back a thousand years, maybe more than that. That might be a long way to go. <laughs> well, I, I think that actually that there was a study at one point that was looking at what the origin was, and it was back 1,300 years early. So, so it is ancient, and so identifying a particular founder for it isn't really going to work. What, you know, for HYPP, there's, there's very clearly a founder within the last 50 years. For uh, Skid and Arabian horses, there's one within the last 100 years. But, but PSSM is an ancient, relatively ancient condition. Um, Dr. Bailey, we have a question from Darla in Maryland who wants to know if you can explain what disorders are associated with silver, dapple, or chocolate coloring, and are they guaranteed mm -hmm. when a horse is homozygous? What a good question, and I don't know that I can answer this entirely. The, um, 
there's, there is a condition that, that she knows of and she's referring to called mul multiple congenital ocular anomalies. And it, it occurs in horses that are homozygous for this, this, uh, this silver um, dilution gene. It, it dilutes the black um, uh, pigment in horses. If they have one copy of it, uh, horses will have cysts in the iris or, or in other parts of the eyes. It's a lesser condition. Um, why I'm somewhat confused on it was that when it was first described, people indicated that there were horses that were, were um, um, had the dilution gene but didn't have the condition. And a couple of years ago, there was a report that said that they could explain all of these cases because of the, a mutation in the same gene that causes the uh, color, um, PML1. Um, Sam, do you, do you know the update on that? No, I think there, there's still a, a little bit of a debate um, because every now and then we, we hear of a horse that, that might have um, silver but have not developed MCOA. But that's really a very, very, very rare situation. I think for a while um, some of the, our, our uh, fellow researchers thought that perhaps there was a gene right next to the, it's a, it's yeah. a female 17. We thought there was one right next to that that might be causing the MC1OA that could occasionally mm. be separated. I think the source of some of the confusion might simply be because the multiple congenital ocular anomalies, particularly the retinal degeneration that leads to blindness, um, is associated with age. I think so in yep. some of these horses that don't appear to have problems, if you were to follow them five or ten years down the road with enough time, and they might be likely to develop those. So we really need yeah. some good long-term studies uh, looking carefully at these horses um, and uh, documenting their disease very carefully in order to be able to provide some more precise answers about that one. That's one of the points in doing genetic research is that the phenotype is really important. And, and there's a variety of things that can affect the phenotype, um, as Sam says, in this case, age. Um, as I say, I have confidence in this last study. It's hard to, you know, people say that there were exceptions, and so it's hard to argue when you say there was no exceptions, but you wonder, what was the age? Did they do a good job looking at it? To be honest, I, I, I find it compelling because this condition has been found in Icelandic horses with the trait, with the, the dapple color. It's been found in the Rocky Mountain horses in Kentucky. And so these are really genetically distant populations. And so the idea that you've got a closely linked gene that's responsible, you know, is less tractable when you've got these two genetically distant populations. So it's very likely that if you have a carrier, you're going to have some minor eye, some cysts in the eye. And I, I'm not a veterinarian. I don't know what the consequences are for, for, for blindness there. But if it's a homozygote, you're going to have more serious eye problems. So, so the color test is probably going to be a pretty good indication about the health with respect to the eye. Um, Dr. Brooks, our next question is from you. It's from Linda in Michigan. And Linda wants to know if there's any new information about equine recurrent uveitis. It seems more common in Appaloosas mm -hmm. and drafts, but we also know it's caused by an infection. So is it genetic or is it infectious? <laughs> Good question. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, it, it's actually, um, it's both. Uh, so. There, there is certainly some interplay with the environment in terms of, of being exposed to an infectious agent. So 
Um, there, there have been some studies done on ERU, um, particularly from some of our colleagues out west, um, and they did find association of risk for ERU um, in two particular subgroups, um, or uh, two particular loci in the in the genome. Sorry, one of those was um, very close to the allele responsible for Appaloosa, and uh, the second was in a region of the genome called the, the MHC, or the Major Histocompatibility Complex, which honestly Ernie can better explain than I can, but it is important um, for your immune system and how you might respond to an infection, and it's often found, uh, particularly in people, in association with autoimmune disease. I don't know, Ernie, you want to fill us on, in on the MHC? No, uh, no I mean, it, 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 it does all sorts of things. Yeah, in one in one point in my career, that was everything that I did. But then we had the rest of the genome. Keep going. <laughs> Sorry, I'm I'm punting. Yes. Um, change if there if there the the changes that that might be present in that MHC might affect how your immune system responds when it's exposed to particular pathogens, and in some cases mm -hmm. it might trigger an autoimmune disease or some inflammation that accidentally. Um, attacks the eye and the eye tissues and creating inflammation and um, autoimmune disease there in the eye. So, it, so it's a bit of both. The, as far as the association to the Appaloosa locus, we, we don't yet know why that might be other than it is a little bit interesting that that locus, um, the LP locus, is important for generating the spots of the Appaloosa color. But it also has a function in the eye, and that it's also related to congenital stationary night blindness. So there may be some functions of that gene within the eye that that are important in inflammation that that we just don't understand yet. Um, Dr. Bailey, our next question is from Beth, and she sent her question in via email. She wants to know if you can discuss why peer review and publication is important and how that process benefits owners who purchase genetic tests. Well, this, this has to do, I think, with, with just the nature of research and how we, how we learn things and, and how, we, how we have confidence in them. And, and peer review is, is one of those steps, and that is that when we when we think that we have discovered something, we, we write it up and we send it to a journal and then they'll send it to two or three other scientists who try to pick it apart. You know, did we design the controls appropriately? Were we biased in doing it? And, and it's very easy for us to be biased. I mean, we're people, we're very excited about what we're doing, and so it's very important to have a second set of eyes look over the results and pick it apart. And so if something has gone through peer review process, you can be fairly confident that it has upheld the standards of, 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 of how research is, is, is conducted. The second, the second aspect, I think, that I would say that goes hand in hand with this in terms of, of having confidence in the, in the output is, is replication. And so when something has been discovered in one laboratory and reported, um, it needs to be duplicated someplace else. That's a harder thing to do because we don't really get points at our universities for discovering something that somebody else already did. And so you generally have to duplicate the work by finding some other aspect to it. But, but, but those, those, that's, I think, the, the main tenets for having confidence in, in the results that, that, that come forward. If it hasn't been published, um, if they can't point to that, then I think that you're reasonable in questioning whether the results are valid. Um, 
Beth had another part to her question, uh, and that is, what type of practical information can breeders take away from studies on genetic diversity within their breed? What, what recommendations do you have for those of mm -hmm. us who are, are out owning horses and, and wanting to breed them? Oh, um, Bernie, you, I, know, you know, I could I comment on that one. Would that be okay? Go ahead, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, certainly we know that in families or groups or individuals that have higher homozygosity and lower genetic diversity measures, that you're more likely to encounter both recessive genetic disease and a general loss of, of thriftiness. That, that's, that's a well-known effect of inbreeding is that you tend to have smaller animals, that their immune systems are not quite as strong, and their reproductive efficiency tends to be a little bit um, lower. And so I think that a very well-done genetic diversity study can be absolutely crucial in maintaining some populations of animals. So rare breeds, uh, breeds that have gone through tight genetic bottlenecks, um, some of our small feral horse populations. You know, if we want to know uh, how intensively we need to manage these animals to make sure that they survive for the future, having a good genetic diversity study can be key. But I think that a more practical application is something that has just arisen recently as we've begun to gain access to some of these large panels of a, a, of a high number of genetic markers. And that is we now absolutely have the ability to put uh, measures of genetic diversity per animal right in the hands of the horse breeder. Um, so for specific breeds, particularly let's say you have a very popular sire and you really want to cross one of his daughters to one of his sons, um, if you go out and look at the homozygosity measure for each of the possible sons you want to cross to, you can purposefully select those that are going to uh, create foals uh, when crossed to their sister that will have higher levels of genetic diversity than we might otherwise guess. So, so that example of a, of a brother-sister mating, every uh, possible cross is going to have the same estimated inbreeding value from a pedigree. But when you look at the genome, because of Mendelian sampling, you know, we all know that full siblings aren't identical. They all look different, right? And if we look at the genome and measure the inbreeding of the homozygosity in each genome and we look at how uh, potential crosses um, might come out, you can, uh, as a responsible breeder, use our genetic tools to make that brother-sister cross but maintain as much genetic diversity um, as you can. That is technically very, very simple to do. The difficulty is in making sure that all these tools are commercially available and making sure that breeders understand, um, A, that they have the availability of that tool, and B, um, how they can interpret and use that tool. And I think that as we, I'm trying to work with a few groups to develop some, app, some apps for your phone um, that can help you do some of these things, and I think we're working on some better web interfaces so that you can manage your genetic tests and predictive crosses online. I think as we start to use our internet and technology you know, our, and our mobile devices to do these things, it's just going to get easier and easier and easier. Uh, the difficulty then just becomes uh, convincing people that it makes sense to go ahead and use those. It's the only thing I would add, add to that, if I could, is I, I don't know about, about breeders using it personally and just saying how, how it is, but I think it's, it's, we have tools that have just come available in the last few years 
that breed registries could use. And it's particularly important if you have a breed that is fairly small. If you have a small number of individuals, you want to make sure that you have lots of genetic diversity. Because as Sam said, if you have low genetic diversity, um, you start seeing reproduction problems. You could have uh, increased susceptibility for, for immune diseases. And the, the, the diversity that exists in the genome is a reservoir to protect against those things. The other thing that happens when the breed gets smaller is that you may see a concentration because of founding stallions with um, disease genes. And they have a much, they're much easier for them to get a foothold in the breed. And so I think small registries have to make sure that there's lots of genetic diversity that continues. And they might use that. It's not something that's done now, but they might use it now to just say, we're going to assess our entire breed. Here's how much diversity that we've got. We want to make sure that over the next five years that our breeding program doesn't end up with a crash in terms of the, the extent of genetic diversity. You are going to see, because the nature of a breed is inbreeding, you're going to have a steady loss of of genetic variation, but you want to do it in a very controlled fashion. And the tools make it possible to control the genetic diversity. I'll stop there. Well, and unfortunately, our hour has gone by, and I still have a bunch of questions that I wanted to ask you guys. But, um, but before we conclude for the evening, I want to ask, um, and either one of you can take this one, but as as horse owners, what is the best way for us to educate ourselves uh, before we breed so that we really do understand the potential consequences and benefits that our horse's genetics offer us? Uh, how do we learn more? I think the horse does a great job publishing papers about these things. So the quality of them, you, you get to, you know, the leaders in the field working on them. So I think that that's, that's probably the first step. You probably will like hearing that, too. But the horse <laughs> yeah. does a good job. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely agree. One of the things I like about the horse magazine is that you guys often have the link to the scientific paper. So we're, we're not getting a, a diluted down version that's, that's not referenceable, but you guys do a good job of translating that information and giving folks the link so they can go back and look at the science. Um, but the only other thing I would add is that don't forget that um, you know we have land-grant institutions that, in just about every state of the union, and uh, large agricultural schools often have extension agents. And so you can, um, horse owners can always reach out and contact their extension agent. They are professionals. Their job is to answer mm. questions. Um, sometimes they won't have the answer. But they very often know how to find the answer or, or will be able to contact one of us um, geneticists and hand you on down the road. Um, the other thing is we are starting some extension programs here at Florida. We have an online uh, horse genetics course for horse owners. Um, it's a six-week uh, online extension short course program. Um, you have uh, vid uh, video programs so with um, visuals with narration and some readings and and there are quizzes and things. It is a pass-fail class. You get a nice certificate at the end that says you survived horse genetics. But um, it's a very important point because uh, in order to, to get – horse owners are smart people, and they always want to use the nifty tools. You know, if it's a new supplement, everybody's excited about it. So I think that the key to getting genetics used more frequently is just simply improving our education, our outreach to horse owners. Okay. The, the other well, thing I – if I can I add one more thing? Yep. We've been talking this evening about, about disease genes, and, and, and those are important. But, you know, you, the breeders don't want to lose sight of the fact of what they're breeding for. And they're not breeding to make healthy animals. 
the reading for some some type of performance. And so this is just something that gets in the way. And so they, they want one of the things that's helpful in studying the genetics is, is figuring out how to work around that. That's all I want to say is that is, is that you know this is this is not the point and this is not the fun in having a horse. Having a horse what's fun is having the performance. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time tonight, but I want to thank you both, Dr. Bailey and Dr. Brooks, for joining us. Also, well, thank you for having us. Yeah. Also, I want to thank everyone who submitted questions ahead of time and listened live. I want to ask you to join us next month. We're going to be talking about preparing for natural disasters with your horse. Until then, from all of us here at the horse, have a great night. <laughs>